Welcome to this Forthright Radio for June 2nd, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. With us for the full hour is veteran journalist, editor, and author John B. Judas. Currently an editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo, John Judas has a long history as a senior writer at the National Journal and former senior editor at the New Republic. As you will hear in this interview, his ideas have evolved from his activist days in the 1960s as a founding editor of Socialist Revolution. In the 1970s, he was a founding editor of the East Bay Voice. In 1976, he became foreign editor of In These Times, the Democratic Socialist News Weekly. His books include William F. Buckley, Patron Saint of the Conservatives, from 1988, The Paradox of American Democracy, Elites, Special Interests, and the Betrayal of the Public Trust, his tenth book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism, was just published by Columbia Global Reports. It is a compendium of revised editions of three of his previous books, The Populist Explosion, The Nationalist Revival, and the Socialist Awakening. John Judas, welcome to Forthright Radio, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. John, your book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism, was just published by Columbia Global Reports. It's a compendium of revised editions of three of your previous books, The Populist Explosion, the Nationalist Revival, and the Socialist Awakening. You write that there is a connection among these subjects and that the revival of populism, political nationalism, and socialism is a product of a breakdown in the consensus on the virtues of the free market and globalization that prevailed from the 1980s till the Great Recession of 2008 you note that over the past three centuries, there have been periods of crises in which the very foundations of societies have been shaken, and I am quoting you now, <laughs> and that we are in one of those periods now. You write that the current period began roughly with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of China as a global power, the formation of the European Union, as well as other events. But with the rise of terrorism, the Great Recession, and now the global pandemic, the political reaction in the United States and Europe went through two phases, which you call the failed adjustment and populist protest, and that now we find ourselves in a third phase with the defeat of Donald Trump and the election of Joe Biden. So would you please expand upon what you mean by these phases? And please start with the first phase of the failed adjustment. Sure. If you look back upon how we thought about our country in the 1990s, and well, I'm not talking about every single person in the world, but generally, and especially in Washington, we had these kind of utopian feelings that were prompted in part by the end of the Cold War and also by the Internet boom. And we had these feeling that anything was possible. I did interviews at the time with people in the Treasury Department, and they thought that there would no longer be any recessions, that there was a 
thing of the past. In Europe, the European Union forms in that period, and they think that the result will be a convergence between the North and the South, so that countries like Italy or Greece or Spain will enjoy the same level of prosperity as Germany or the Netherlands. And that by incorporating the Eastern European countries into the European Union, they would become as much liberal democracies as the countries of the West. So there was this kind of uh, utopian feeling. We also thought that by putting China, inviting them into the WTO as a developing nation, remember this is developing nation like Guatemala or something like that with the same kind of rules, they would also eventually become a liberal democracy and a, a good faith member of this uh, world capitalist club. And all these illusions were destroyed. And the biggest blow was the Great Recession. But, you know, you had a lot of things happening simultaneously, terrorist attacks, climate change, and all of these contributed to a period of urgency beginning around 2008 to do something about it. And the initial responses, and let's think about Obama in the United States, were much too hesitant. And they were very much framed in terms of the older kind of ideas that had gotten us into the trouble in the first place. The need for balanced budgets, the need to allow money to move wherever it wanted, the need for people to be able to cross borders and work in whatever country they want. All these kind of things, this idea of capital and labor mobility were, instead of being revised, were at best modified. And if you remember about Obama, by 2010, he was worried about balanced budgets. And I think Biden has learned a lot from that kind of, again, period of failed adjustment where we had a recession that lasted, what, seven or eight years, not by technical, but in terms of unemployment. And Europe had the same kind of problems. All of a sudden, this great dream of a united Europe just blew apart. And you had these crises in, in southern Europe. And in northern Europe, you had people becoming very resentful and not wanting to do anything about it. So that's really the first phase. The second is when you get the rise of, of populism. In Europe, you get Marine Le Pen and the, at the time it was called the National Front. Now it's called the National Rally, the alternative for Deutschland. Uh, you get all these and you get parties on the left as well. Podemos, Syriza in Greece and in the United States, you get to my amazement in 2015 when I was covering the campaign. These two guys, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, which who four years before I wouldn't have dreamed have been uh, major contenders for a presidential nomination, one from the left and one from the right, but both having the same kind of populist ideas, that is, the idea that they represented the people against an establishment of both parties that wasn't listening to them, that was pursuing policies that were still getting us in the same kind of trouble. Corporations leaving for overseas, companies avoiding taxes, workers getting a raw deal, all these kind of things that, in fact, again, you find Trump and Sanders very much had in common. Although Trump, 
like the right-wing populists, had this third kind of element, which is the idea that the establishment was screwing us by coddling this other group, uh, illegal immigrants and, and Muslims. And in France, you also get immigrants, Muslims. In Germany, you get the refugees coming from Syria. In Italy, the refugees from Northern Europe. So with the right-wing populace, you always get this other element, but you also get in common this rejection of globalization and the promise of the free market. So that's really the second phase. And you have Trump winning in, in the United States. Alternative for Deutschland goes from 2% in the polls in Germany in 2015 to become the leading opposition party. This is happening in a, a lot of the countries in Europe. What I'd say now is that we're in this kind of peculiar period where in the face of the pandemic and the recession, Voters have gone back to some extent to tried and true people. And, you know, so we have a 78-year-old president who was in the Senate in the early, early 1970s. Germany, Angela Merkel, who's the longest, I think the longest standing chance they've ever had. Boris Johnson in Britain, two-term mayor of London, been around a long time. Uh, or technocratic technocrats uh, in Italy uh, and France, Macron and Draghi, I think if that's how you pronounce his name, or Draghi, who is now the prime minister in Italy. So we're in a kind of period where we're trying to make another adjustment, but where things have clearly changed. And you can see that in the United States. I think Biden has learned a lot of things from the failures of the Obama years. And in particular, that he has to go big and that he can't start worrying about government being too big and that he has to be aggressive. And he's now screwing around with the Republicans trying to get a deal on this infrastructure bill. But I think his patience will be limited. Obama could have had a much, much stronger health care bill if he'd moved quickly in 2009 when he had a tooth. He had more than a, a, a filibuster-proof majority. But he waited and dilly-dallied and tried to get a deal. And by then, the Republicans had a seat, had won a Senate seat in Massachusetts, and he had to make a deal, and out went the public option. So I think we're on a positive course where we see some uh, a administration really responding to the problems we've had, to the failure of the kind of policies we pursued in the 1990s and early 2000s. But it remains in doubt. And we'll have to see what happens in the elections in 2022 and 2024, because we could go back to the same kind of stagnation and standstill in Washington, where one party gets in and does all these things, then the other party gets in and undoes them, and we go back and forth. So that's where we are right now. John Judas, I remember very clearly in grade school, not so long after the defeat of the Third Reich, being taught that nationalism was just plain evil. And my teacher defined it as an attitude of my country, right or wrong. Now, I'm going to get to the question, ultimately, which is that you don't see it as an absolute evil and ask you to explain. But you brought up the current narrow, narrow margin in the Congress and 
a phenomenon which we could call in this country my party right or wrong. And the history of obstructionism, particularly by Mitch McConnell, who is very overt about his sole priority in the Obama era was to make sure that nothing Obama tried to pass would pass. So it's a tangent off of your book, The Politics of Our Time, but I would be interested in your take on that. We started to see that in 1994 when the Republicans won the House of Representatives. And that was the first time they won the Senate, too, in a very long time, in, what, 30, 40 years that they had won both of those houses. And what you saw then was a kind of peculiar rebirth of an old anti-New Deal coalition from the late 1930s. At the time, it was Southern Democrats and Midwestern Republicans. Now it was Midwestern Republicans and Southern Republicans because the leading party in the South was now the Republicans and not the uh, Democrats. The thing that undergirds the polarization in our politics and between the parties are two, there are two things really. One is um, the question about extractive industries, agriculture, mining, oil, all these kind of industries and their importance, particularly in states that are not so populated but still have clout in the Electoral College, you know, the states in the in the Rockies, the farm states, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, which are now important for oil, Texas. So for a lot of those states, there's just a clash over in the environment and the Democrats and commitment to environmental protection and to addressing climate change. And if you want to see the reason why West Virginia, which was one of the, the most loyal Democratic states, I mean, it didn't vote for Ronald Reagan in 1984, went Republican. A lot of that's about coal. It's not about racism or anything like that. And Again, if you look at Texas and a lot of these states, so that's one aspect, and that's really created a kind of polarization. The other thing is the fact that over the last 20 or 30 years, the country has divided economically between these thriving megalopolis, as they're called, which I live in one in Washington, D.C., and the towns, small towns, mid-sized towns, in the Midwest and South that have suffered deindustrialization and also the loss of mining, but an incredible loss of industry where you see these just city blocks that were once factories that are now fields with the grass growing over them. And in those areas, you really get a kind of a conflict between them and the people in the megalopolises that is cultural as well as economic, where people in those areas who used to have a multiplicity of associations and interests in their life, unions, neighborhoods, all kinds. They used to think people could think that they would have lifetime employment and their kids could have the same jobs. The kids all have moved out now. They've moved to the big towns, the big cities. So you get an older population for whom, stripped of all these other identities, God, family, and nation become extraordinarily important. 
On the other hand, you get in the megalopolises, the cosmopolitan America, where people have many identities. A lot of people have gone to college. They have, they see themselves in Washington. When I moved here, I was always amazed that within about five minutes of a conversation, you'd find out what university somebody had gone to or, you know, what big law firm they were part of or even what company they worked for that they had some pride in. In any case, you have this cultural clash. And so the Republican-Democratic split goes over these two things, extractive industries and deindustrialized Midwest and South versus the megalopolises. And that's to the extent that those divisions remain, it's very hard to make deals in the country. I mean, again, Mitch McConnell is from a state that used Kentucky that used to be pretty dependably Democratic, a big coal state. So it's not just, again, they're de-industrialized. It's a, Eastern Kentucky is coal. It's like very much like West Virginia. And you have people who are, in some cases, dirt poor, who are going to vote uh, Republican as the party that they think respects their values, which the Democrats and with their fa- all their fancy ideas about gender and gun control and race do not. So that's the that's the split. That's the polarization. And it's going to be very hard to bridge that. Okay, so you brought up just the terrible repercussions of globalization for some of the people that you were mentioning, particularly those who had dependable industrial jobs, that sort of thing. In your book, in the part talking about understanding nationalism, you draw a connection between globalization and nationalism. Would you share some of your thoughts with our listeners? Well, let me talk a little about nationalism first, just in general. You really can't have a functioning democracy or an advanced welfare state unless people feel they are part of the same country and they share an identity with other people. So you and where are you? You're in California, right? Uh, Let me explain. I'm in Bozeman, Montana. The show originated in Mendocino County, California, where it continues, but it also is broadcast in Montana. So we're both Rocky Mountain and West Coast. Okay. So you people in Montana, when you pay your your federal income taxes, have to accept the fact that those taxes are going to go help people in California or in my hometown of Silver Spring, Maryland, that you'll never meet or see. And you're willing to do that because they're Americans. You're also willing to accept the results of an election, even if Montana went for Donald Trump, because that's the way the American system works, and you're part of that. When that breaks down, when that trust breaks down, you get real chaos in the country. And that's the situation that we're in in the United States right now. The conclusion I draw from that is not that national identity is bad, but we have to figure out how to restore this common sense of a national identity. When I was in Britain researching one of the books, I went to the Labor Party conference and people there were proposing that non-citizens who were from the European Union who were working there 
be allowed to vote in the national elections. Now, again, that's something that seems like a really screwy idea. What if somebody who was visiting here got to vote in our national election? So, and, and but I think it was again, it was a function of cosmopolitan people who don't have this sense of nation and that it's important to have this common idea. I think that's very much a problem with the left in the United States and with people who uh, live in places like I live. So there's a really positive part of nationalism and national identity. On the other hand, in times like the present where you have this kind of crisis and where you have a sense of a country coming apart, you get the rise of a populist movements and populist candidates like Trump who wed together populist appeals about the economy or whatever with a kind of us versus them politics where us is the real Americans and them is illegal immigrants or even legal immigrants. And you get the same thing in Europe. And that's a really toxic, bigoted kind of nationalism that gets us in a lot of trouble. But the counter of that is not to say, well, there isn't really, uh, the nations are ridiculous, we should have open borders, it shouldn't matter, citizenship is unimportant. So that's the, I mean, that's the kind of polarization, that's another sense in which the parties themselves are polarized, and in which a gesture that is justifiable on one hand, like let's say that taking a knee for the national anthem can be deeply offensive to other parts of the the country, even if they're not, say, racist or that they will, you know, didn't think it was a good thing that that guy put his knee on George Floyd's neck. So there's your answer about the nationalism. Oh, I guess in globalization, it's important to separate out nationalism and what the Trump people call globalism or globalization, which is the idea, again, that an American company doesn't have to be loyal to Americans, that it can just uh, do whatever it wants. If it wants to make uh, uh, shoes in China or whatever with forced labor uh, among the Uyghurs, that's their prerogative. So I think that there, there also has to be internationalism. You can't do things like combat climate change without international agreements. We're finding the same thing with the pandemic. So there's legitimate nationalism, there's legitimate internationalism, but we're being bedeviled by false hopes about globalization and by both an assertion of a toxic nationalism and a rejection of any kind of patriotism or national identity. So it's it's a complicated subject. It's not It's not simply, you know, nationalism is bad. These and other topics are what you handle in your book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism, John Judas. There's so much more to be said about the issues around nationalism and populism. And I should let the listeners know, you do not only view these things from the perspectives of the United States, but quite thoroughly also in the European present. But what I'd like to get to now is what you have written about socialism. It seems to me that particularly under 
the new administration and the efforts that uh, President Biden is making to try to deal with the crisis of COVID and other things, many of the things he tries to do is shot down with just the single word socialism. And there are large sections of this country that as soon as that word is said, that's the end of the discussion. You can't get any farther with evidence or reason or anything else. So would you please tell our listeners, when you use the word socialism, what do you mean? Well, it's not really important in a sense what I mean. I mean, I was uh, I came out of the 60s left, and what we talked about then was really a Marxist kind of socialism. It was uh, workers owning and controlling the means of production. It is kind of, you know, if you want a simple formula, the Soviet Union plus democracy. You'd have central planning, but you'd also have democratic elections. And that idea really went by the wayside for me and for a lot of people in the new left. First of all, it was just, we just couldn't imagine what we were talking about. It was a more of a kind of religious conviction than anything else. Because, again, if you try to think of how such a thing would work or how we can get from X to Y, particularly if you were thinking about that during the Reagan years, you just see a big blank. And I think that for that, that that kind of generation of socialism really died away with the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. What I found to my amazement beginning in the 2000s was that you'd see these polls of young people and 50% would say they like socialism and 50% would say they like capitalism, things like that. Where was that coming from? What did that mean? I did a a lot of interviewing during Bernie Sanders' campaign, and I know a lot about him and about his past. And what people mean, and I'm not talking about some socialist organization that has a membership and a charter and whatever, but again, Sanders voters and people like that mean by socialism is something much different, and it's as similar in some ways to the old Christian socialism of the 19th century, cooperation, equality, then they called it Christian fellowship and brotherhood. We would use other terms now, but cooperation rather than competition and individualism. Scandinavia in the sense of a strong safety net, so people don't feel the kind of anxiety about their lives, about health care, about having money to go to college, things like that. So I think socialism has had a revival among the young, particularly in college towns and in these megalopolises. But the kind of socialism people are talking about is very different from the socialism that I thought about in the 1960s. And I think that's all to the good. On the other hand... You still have a lot of people who grew up in the shadow of the Cold War who identify socialism with totalitarianism, with a complete lack of democracy, with dictatorships, with Soviet Union, now with Venezuela. And they still form probably a majority of the voters in the country. I think the median age is something like 50 of the American voter. 
So socialism is not a winning issue outside of maybe Queens and New York and college towns. And, you know, San Francisco now is a socialist district attorney and a city council person. But in a lot of parts of the country, it isn't. And that may change in 10 or 20 years as the memories of the Cold War dim. But for the moment, what we saw with Bernie Sanders and things like that, I think is something that is really primarily confined to the young. But now let, let me say just one other thing. If you think of socialism in that way, welfare state, advanced welfare state, social democracy, cooperation, not competition, democracy, a racial equality. Uh, you, you really, you're looking at something that people like Elizabeth Warren espouse as, as clearly as Bernie Sanders. I mean, they don't call it socialism. She said she's a what died in the wool capitalist. You also have elements of socialism with what Biden's doing. I mean, Biden is very much committed to shifting power from the people at the top to people below, giving unions more power, changing the distribution of income and wealth in the country, lifting up the conditions for people like caregivers in the country. All those are kinds of things that are elements of socialism within capitalism, but we don't call them socialists. And from my standpoint, well, I'm happy to call myself a socialist, but I don't care a whit what it's called, what the program is called. What I care about is the actual program and the reforms. So for the moment, again, socialism, I think, is something that's an isolated development, but it's, you know, it amazes me. I was part of a socialist group in the 60s and 70s, and we ran candidates for the, I think it was called then the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. And we had a really good candidate. She was experienced in uh, housing politics and all that stuff. I think there were 15 seats to be filled and four candidates were one. And she came in 15th. She came in just ahead of Jesus Christ, Satan. So We've come a long way. Things have really changed in the last 50 years. But still, again, I think that if you ran in Miami or Galveston or somewhere like that, like a socialist, and and if these Congress people from swing districts in the Richmond, like Abigail Spanberger, have to answer for whether they're socialists, that's a problem for them, even though they have politics that I would support. Some people, when they're trying to um, move through the blockage of the nomenclature, point out, well, what about roads and libraries and public schools? Isn't that socialism? Is that a useful way to go? Sure. I mean, if you're trying to explain, I mean, I just did that to you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Medicare for all. Making federal contractors allow unions, uh, not try to block unionization, all those kinds of things are elements of socialism. In Germany, workers sit on the boards of directors of corporations. So again, those are elements of socialism within capitalism. And I think that that's the way people are now thinking about it, not as a kind of different period of history that will come after capitalism and for which you'd need a violent revolution to achieve, which is the way we thought of it in the 60s. 
again, I think that's a much more realistic way to think, at least for the present, than the way we used to think of it in the 60s. So absolutely, public libraries, sure. Though a lot of that stuff goes back to the Puritans in the uh, New England in the 17th century. Right, but the principle of tax dollars being used and owned by the government for the good of all. Anyway, we don't need to belabor that. I would just add, it's frequently forgotten, but the United States was allied with the Soviet Union in order to overcome fascism. That got snowed under very quickly. But I think a case could be made that the results would have been very different without the Soviet Union, who suffered the greatest numbers of deaths of any country with that. And then I would also add that in terms of Marxism and Leninism, and particularly Leninism, both the conservative ideologues who have been organizing since the 1950s, particularly the Koch network, they are explicit in using Leninism's cadre model as a working model, as did Steve Bannon. So I don't know what we can do with that information, but as much as they would speak against those principles, they certainly do acknowledge the utility of some of their methods. Sure. They, but, you know, corporations work according to a principle of democratic centralism as well. And you could get fired as a middle manager if after the company reaches a decision, you uh, go in the opposite direction. But that doesn't mean you want the society or a political group to be organized in that way. That's yes, a- a- absolutely. OK, so we've acknowledged that not just the United States, but pretty much the world is in a major crisis or crises, whether it's the pandemic or climate change and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder what you see as being viable ways to deal with it, both at the national level and at the international level, because we seem to be at an impasse in terms of being able to organize, to resolve what, what many consider an existential crisis, particularly around climate change, but it remains to be seen with pandemics, too. Do you have any thoughts on that, John Judas? Okay. I have, I have some thoughts on it, but, you know, I was a professional revolutionary a while ago, and I was such an abysmal failure that I stopped giving advice to people on the, what to do next. I'm, pre, I'm better at, at the looking at what, what went wrong than what, how to go right. I mean, the main thing that Democrats and the left have to figure out in this country is really how to build political majorities. And in order to do that, We have to win over some of those Trump voters, some of the people, the less well-to-do people who would otherwise be attracted to Republicans and to people like Trump on cultural grounds. I'm not saying anything new. Other people have said this before, but I think we have to find the economic common grounds and not uh, 
go to the extremes on issues about race, gender, immigration, what have you. And I think that the, the Biden people have pretty good impulses about that. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he got into uh, office in 1980, was very smart about that stuff. I mean, he got into office partly with the support of the moral majority, which was at the time the big uh, new Christian right organization. So he would put somebody who represented those views as the deputy assistant secretary in health and human services. And they'd put out some report that would start a furor somewhere. But, you know, nothing really would happen. School prayer, you know, you just bury those issues. And I think that the Biden people so far have done a pretty good job of focusing on the relief and recovery and build back better and these kind of core economic issues that can unite the country and staying away from some of the hot-button cultural issues that would divide us. So in very simple terms, that's what Democrats have to do. Internationally, you know, we have a big problem now. We have growing rivalry with China, hostility towards the Soviet Union. Again, I think that, that there we're just going to have to learn to separate things and hope that it works and, and see if we can cooperate with China in India, who are the other big partners of our, on uh, the issue of climate change, because there's just really no way to solve it, to address it internationally. I mean, I, again, a country like Britain or Switzerland, they can go crazy and decarbonize in two years and it won't make a bit of difference. You really have to look to those three countries. So Again, we have to do what we can to try to pursue that while at the same time being tough on trade issues, protesting the human rights. But again, there, there's limits to what we can do. And with the Chinese, we're, we really are facing a big challenge because I don't know what, how far this guy is going to go on Taiwan. Taiwan and South Korea are the two great success stories of the Cold War. And I'd hate to see a Taiwan go the, the way of Hong Kong and uh, become incorporated into this uh, dictatorship. So, again, we face very difficult challenges internationally. And we'll have to see if we can separate pandemics and environmental stuff on the one hand from questions about human rights and, and power over the seas on the other. You spend the end of the book... I want to go back to the socialism, talking about this rather recent development of the organizing to form, would you say that the democratic socialists are trying to form a party or is that more like a movement or or what would you say? Well, in America, we have a weird kind of thing. If we were in uh, Germany or some other country, they'd be forming a a party. But we have a two-party system that really makes it very difficult for uh, third parties. It's only when you have have, uh, this kind of huge crisis in the country where neither of the parties are able to respond, as we had in the 1850s, that you get viable third parties. So... These groups like the Democratic Socialists of America are not really political parties. They endorse candidates. They could run their own candidates, but uh, if they didn't run them within the Democratic Party, they just uh, they would get nowhere. Maybe in Bozeman or 
you know, some some small town, you know, maybe this you could get a miracle. But so they're stuck. And people who talk about forming a big third party are just throwing their sand into the wind and the wind blows it back again. It's an old William Blake poem about the Enlightenment, but it's a futile exercise. And I think that they understand it, though. Within uh, that group DSA, there are people who have these kind of fantasies about a, a mass party of workers forming and squeezing out the Democrats and Republicans. I think that that's uh, I think that's not going to happen. Well, I know that people who are trying to organize around the democratic socialism hate this comparison. But what about the comparison between the rise of the Tea Party? And the effective control in some areas of their ideology on the Republican Party, and particularly at the primary level. Yeah, well, that's the Tea Party again was called itself party, but it was a decentralized group of organizations along with these big called AstroTurf organizations, the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, and there was another one called Freedom Works. So it was a really a melange of groups. The Tea Party model is dangerous in some ways, because if you think about what they accomplished, I mean, first of all, they're now, they've now disappeared. So it was another one of these firefly movements in America that what they lasted six or seven years and then they're gone. The other thing is they actually led to a lot of defeats. I'm Delaware. I remember, I mean, a lot of these kooky Republicans were nominated because of the Tea Party strength in the primary. So I think you have to be careful with that model. And I worry about groups like the Justice Democrats and these other groups that encourage these candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But think again of that as the model, as the ultimate model, because I think the ultimate model, again, is to think through how you can have majorities. To have majorities, you have, you're going to have to have some compromise. You're going to have to put some issues behind you. The Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, which was, a again, a centrist group, leave aside their politics for a moment, but they were crafty in that way. They were thinking about majorities. We need more of that kind of thinking among democratic socialists and, and less of a thinking of how can we get our most earnest followers into Congress so they can raise hell. That's fine, but you also have to figure out how you can get a majority that could counter these Republicans' continual attempt to redistribute on behalf of the rich, wealthy, and powerful. One of the things that perplexes me in the current situation is what some people are calling Trumpism. But to me, it's, I don't even know how to say this, but he has so bewitched so many people that the evidence that they can see with their own eyes are quickly persuaded, gaslighted, I guess is the convenient term. Polls are showing that 70% of Republican voters believe that the election was stolen from him, despite the evidence in numerous states 
by Republican secretaries of states with audits and recounts and everything else. What's going on in Arizona now, which I just can't believe. And yet professional politicians reverse their original statements about the insurrection and invasion of the Capitol building, the stopping of the constitutionally mandated requirements of Congress on the day required, all that set aside for fear of one man. Can you think of any precedents in our nation's history to parallel this? Well, look, I have a, a few things to say about this. I'll tell you about precedents in a, in a moment. But first of all, you have to be very wary of these polls. And you have to look very carefully at what questions they ask. And also think about percentages. Now, the, according to Gallup, about somewhere between 25 or 30 percent of the people identify now as Republicans. So if you get 70 percent, it's a high. I mean, I've seen like 60 percent think the election was stolen of Republican voters. So, again, you're talking there about, what, 18, 19 percent of the electorate. So it's not quite the end of the world yet. But it is really crazy. I'm not denying that. And it's very disturbing that that many people think that. I think 2022 election will be a big deal. If Trump plays a huge role in that, as he's going to try to do. And if the Republicans don't take the House, I think you'll see a real change of heart among the Republican leadership and a repudiation of Trump. Or at the least, what you'll see is a real attempt to try to challenge him and prevent him from continuing to play a big role in American politics. But if they succeed and if he remains a big deal and if he runs in 2024, uh, again, I think marginally it'll probably help the Democrats, but it's, it won't help the country at all. I mean, because he does spread, he, he, he's a force of evil and he, he does encourage lies about the country and about our system. And, and I haven't seen things like that happen in, in our lifetime. The precedent would probably be the 1890s and the early 1900s, where on the one hand, you had populists from the left advocating more democracy, direct election of senators, things like that, uh, income tax. And on the other hand, you had the southern racists who were trying to disenfranchise and did disenfranchise southern blacks and poor whites along the way but at the same time presented themselves as a populist. Like there was a guy in South Carolina, a governor, then a senator named Pitchfork Ben Tillman. I mean, you know, it was guys like that. So I think that the period we're going through is similar to that period. It's also similar in the sense that you had a part of the economy, the agriculture that was really in a state changing where it had been the dominant part of American industry, but it was being overshadowed by the growth of uh, big and heavy industry manufacturing in the country and where a lot of the discontent was coming from that part of the country. So, yeah, that's that would be the precedent, not the not, for instance, the Civil War or Central Europe in the 1920s. Well, more than that, though, is that a single individual has mesmerized whatever percentage of the country so that whatever he says 
is infallible. I've actually heard of people using the term infallible, and that's why, since he says he could not possibly lose, he didn't lose. That's the question I'm asking. Is there any precedent for a single individual to have that kind of sway over 18, 20 percent or whatever of the electorate? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to look back in the history of religion because it's a kind of papal infallibility and it's a religious phenomenon where you have that kind of blind faith and belief in uh, a a single charismatic individual. I mean, obviously, with Hitler in Germany, you had the big lie and had people believing all kinds of crazy things about Germany, Germany's past and uh, present. But in the United States, I'm not sure we've ever had anything quite so zany. I mean, before the Civil War and the Confederacy, yeah, you had uh, you had a lot of theories about uh, race and uh, and world history that were out of bounds that in that same way. But but uh, again, in my my lifetime, certainly, and I've been around since the 1940s, I've never seen anything like it. Well, John Judas, we're reaching the end of our conversation. Uh, Any final words for our listeners? Buy the book. That would be my uh, final words. And if you have any final questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Oh, I have too many questions. That's the problem. (laughs) Well, I do want to give you a a chance. At the very end, you enumerate some reforms that you consider vital for, let's just leave it to the United States. Do you want to share any of those? I think that the crucial thing in, in America is we have to have power from below. If you look at the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the Republicans have had the churches, they've had the gun clubs, they've had the chambers of commerce, which is not just something in Washington, but it's in every small and big town in America. The Democratic Party was built around the unions to a great extent. And uh, the reason why the Democrats have been losing uh, all these state and local elections that just go by with very low voting margins is because the Republicans have this organized base, and the Democrats used to have one, but they don't. And the question I have about our future and whether really gonna the country can really turn left, that is toward become more democratic, more equal, is whether we can develop this kind of power from below, either through the revival of uh, the, the labor movement or through some other kind of movements that play a similar kind of role. I'm not the enthusiastic. I mean, I completely support these temporary uh, movements, moveon.org or, or what have you. But, you know, there can be like the Arab Springs. They, they can come and go. The Obama in 2008, the enormous outpouring of organized support that he got, you know, it was gone in a year or two. So that's the main thing that I think that we have to look towards in in the future. John Judas, thank you very much for joining us today on Forthright Radio. I very much appreciate your decades of work and for writing the book, The Politics of Our Time, Populism, Nationalism, Socialism. Thank you and goodbye to all your listeners. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been John Judas. 
We've been discussing his book, *The Politics of Our Time: Populism, Nationalism, Socialism*, just published by Columbia Global Reports. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy Laclaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. A note from an article in the Intercept that you may have missed, headlined "Corporate Subsidy Quietly Dies in Texas, Topping Off Bad Week for Big Oil." Although the failed effort. To overhaul election laws has gotten the headlines. The Texas legislature adjourned without reauthorization of the tax exemption program known as Chapter 313, which had delivered $10 billion in tax cuts to corporations operating in Texas, with petrochemical firms being the biggest winners. This lapse in authorization coincided with three other groundbreaking blows to oil and gas corporations. A Dutch court ruled that Shell Oil is liable for its climate impacts and must reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. Exxon Mobil's shareholders booted out two members of the corporation's board of directors for its failures on the climate crisis, and Chevron shareholders voted to force the company to cut its emissions. With all four developments coming, the failure to reauthorize the subsidies in Texas fell under the radar. Taken together, the moves demonstrate changing opinions about climate change and fossil fuel companies. One analyst referred to the news about Shell, Exxon, and Chevron as "quote the start of a new era for big oil." End of the quote. Between the court decisions, shareholder activism, and the unwillingness of Texas legislators to continue unpopular handouts to oil companies, the public may no longer be willing to go along with business as usual for fossil fuel firms. Quote, People aren't persuaded by the dogma anymore that tax breaks create jobs. These extractive industries have been extractive of the tax base too. People realize it's too corrosive. End of the quote. Said Greg Leroy, executive director of Good Jobs First, which tracks corporate subsidies. The program's returns were also unimpressive. If measured by job creation, the program cost the state at least two hundred eleven thousand six hundred dollars per job, according to a calculation by the Houston Chronicle. Quote, no one had really questioned this program, but we knew in our guts that the program was just a blank check. But we also are very sober about the realities of the Texas legislature. The Texas Chapter 313 defeat is the second recent win against multi-billion-dollar oil and gas industry subsidies in fossil fuel states. Last fall, 2020, organizers in Louisiana beat back a ballot initiative designed to counteract dramatic reforms to the state's industry giveaway program. 
In a state that leans heavily Republican, people voted down the constitutional amendment by a landslide. Broderick Bagert, who helped organize the Louisiana effort, sees what happened in Texas as part of a turning of the tides in a region where industry has long ruled. Quote, in a lot of cases, it's not that these battles have been lost. They just haven't been fought, he said. What you're seeing for the first time is the battles being fought. Established in the state constitution itself, Louisiana's industrial tax exemption program is embedded even more deeply into state policy than Texas's and has represented even more of a rubber stamp. In Louisiana, few regulations encumbered the tax exemptions, and the State Board of Commerce and Industry would routinely approve the list of exemptions all at once during its meetings. Organizers took note that the tax exemptions brought few benefits to the state in terms of jobs. The groups decided the best approach to such an entrenched subsidy was to exploit a loophole that stated the exemptions could only occur, quote, with the approval of the governor, end quote. During John Bell Edwards' campaign for governor in 2015, Louisiana organizers began to pressure him to withdraw approval. To our surprise, Bill Edwards moved quickly after being elected, Bagert said. The summer after Edwards' election, he announced that the program would be reformed. Rather than a rubber stamp from the state board, corporations would have to request exemptions from the parish governing bodies, municipal governing bodies, school boards, and sheriffs, who would lose the property taxes gifted away in the exemptions. The oil, gas, and petrochemical industry was blindsided, and lobbyists have been fighting against the change since it went into effect. Bagert estimated that a typical legislative session sees 20 to 30 pieces of proposed law attempting to undo the reforms. Quote, their efforts to defeat the reforms have mostly been lost, end quote. Just as in Texas, however, the fait accompli of reversing the subsidies has changed the game. Now that some $350 million in new revenue is already streaming into local government's coffers, the subsidy will be politically difficult to reinstate. Voters have repeatedly rebuffed the industry's efforts and a natural gas industry-backed ballot initiative for a new property tax exemption failed among Louisiana voters last fall. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.